Today's scripture verse is James chapter 1, verses 1 to 8. James, a servant of God and the Lord Jesus Christ, to the twelve tribes in the dispersion, greetings. Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds, for you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. And let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. If any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask God, who gives generously to all without reproach, and it will be given him. But let him ask in faith, with no doubting, for the one who doubts is like a wave of the sea that is driven and tossed by the wind. For that person must not suppose that he will receive anything from the Lord. He is a double-minded man, unstable in all his ways. This is God's word. Thank you. I've got one. Good morning, everybody. It's good to see you today. Uh, We are doing a short series, getting ready for our launch of our second service on September 17th. And the name of our series is simply Vision. And it's during the next several weeks that we're going to be casting vision, not generally, but particularly. This isn't a series that we're doing where we're going through the general ideas of what our vision is, but what, what I'm doing and our pastors are doing is we're grabbing particular values and ideas that we really, really love that we feel that our church needs to hear right now. The idea that I'm going to be addressing today is triumphalism. I'm going to be talking about how we are working hard to not be a triumphalistic church. I'll talk about that, what that, what I mean by that in just a moment. But the first three weeks of this series, really the most important part of this series was us bringing definition to what the church is. For three weeks, many of you will remember, I preached in Acts chapter one for three weeks. The same text for three Weeks. Some of you were mad at me, but I, I, I pressed ahead and I plowed and I kept my principles. And what we learned in those three weeks is this, that the fundamental reason the church of Jesus Christ exists is for mission. Mission. That is why the church exists. The church does not exist to provide extravagant pastoral care to its parishioners. That is not why the church exists. The church does not exist to entertain its parishioners. The church does not exist to make sure that we are a healing environment. Those things are all good. Those things are all necessary. But the reason why the church exists is to be an outward-focused mission such as that we are the visible people of God that are witnesses to all the nations and all the ethnic groups of the earth. This is why we exist. So everything that we do as a church, everything that every church does, should be informed by that idea. Now, there are some churches who who walk that out differently than others. That's okay. We have our own particular ways we walk out our mission. But if we are not first mission and second everything else, then we're not a healthy church no matter how wonderful it feels on Sunday mornings. So today we're going to go ahead and get into the book of James. James chapter 1, verse 1. James says this, James, a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ, 
to the 12 tribes in the dispersion, greetings. He's talking to 12 tribes in the dispersion. This James, we think, is the half-brother of our Lord Jesus Christ. He's the leader of the church at Jerusalem, and he's writing from the church at Jerusalem to all of the Christians in his network all over the known world in the Roman Empire. He's writing them a letter, and in his mind, he views these Christians, gatherings of Jewish people and Gentile people who have come under the lordship of Jesus. He views them as sort of a new version of Israel, which is he refers, which is why he refers to them as 12 tribes. And to these 12 tribes, he's writing to a bunch of churches. So this is a general letter to all Christians. And in this general letter he's writing to these believers, he says this, the first thing he says, what is primary on his agenda is in verse 2. Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. Count it all joy. Or consider it a joy when you are experiencing trials. Consider it joy. Now, I want to talk about what that doesn't mean for a moment. To count it all joy doesn't mean to just think positive. That's not what that means. He is not telling us to stuff our sadness and our hurt and our anger and all of the other feelings that we have and keep a stiff upper lip, hopefully a smiling stiff upper lip. He's not telling us to be dishonest with ourselves and with God and with each other. He's not saying that either. He's not saying to suppress our feelings. Rather, what he's telling us is that we should think differently about the trials and the hardships that we face. Look at them differently. Think about them differently. As you are analyzing the hurt and the pain in your life, Your former ways, in your former ways, you interpreted it this way. I would like you, James is saying, to look at your trials differently and interpret your trials through a different lens. Look at them differently. Look at them differently. Not look on the bright side, but look at them differently. Evaluate and assess hardship with a different set of eyes. I know many of you are experiencing trials right now. Many of you are. I know many of your stories. Many of you are suffering right now. The weight of pain is heavy in your life. You feel crushed by suffering. He's not telling you to look in the bright side. He's inviting us to go deeper. In order to look and interpret and assess your trials differently so you can experience joy in those trials, there's something that we have to do first. We have to reject something that many of us believe, maybe all of us. I know I believe this a lot. That hardship is bad. It's not for me, and I want to escape as fast as I can. I've got to get out of this hardship. I will do anything 
to get out of this hardship. Hardship shows us our powerlessness. Because once we make it our life's aim, and many of us, we do this. Our principles go out the window when trials come to our lives. Because trials hurt so bad, and we have an assumption that we should be entitled to a life without suffering, that when trials do hit our lives, we throw out all of our principles, and we put everything that we are into trying to shoo away pain in our life. Get away from me. And how often does that work? I am never able to do that. I know how to medicate and forget about my trials, but I don't know how to make trials go away. There is nothing that shows us our powerlessness like trials. There is nothing I would submit to you that brings clear into focus our singular need for Jesus except for trials. Nothing. So we're not talking about thinking positive, but we are going to have to face a hard truth. That hardship is not always bad. That it's not always the devil. That it's not always some wicked vice. How can I say that? You obviously aren't going through anything, Chris. I'm going to give you the first implication I'm going to pull out of this verse. Implication one. He uses the word trials here, not circumstances. Circumstances uh, have, a, have, a, have, a, have a sound of like randomness to them. Consider it all joy when circumstances of various kinds happen to your life. But he doesn't say that. He uses a very intentional word, and that word is trials. And that means that because we are under trial or in a trial, that means that there's not a sense of randomness to what we're facing. No matter how painful it is, there's no randomness to our hardship. And if we are being tried, that means that someone over us who has authority over us is trying us. Anybody want to take a guess at who that is? Man, the confidence and faith in this room is amazing. Just say that, whisper it really loud. Jesus. There you go, there you go, Jesus. Jesus is the Lord of our trials. Can we say that together? Jesus is the Lord of my trial. Let's say it again. Jesus is the Lord of my trials. We just got, sing- we just got done singing about that. That Jesus commands our destiny. We all hooped and hollered and shouted and that part came because it sounds so good. But when we think about our trials, when we are neck deep in the swamp of pain, we're not hooping and hollering anymore. Our theology is under great duress. Do we still cling to the Jesus who holds our destiny in his hand? And so if we are experiencing trials, that means we are being tried. And the one who is trying us as followers of Jesus is, I gave you the answer, Jesus. Jesus is. So then we have to ask a question. Why is Jesus trying us? I'm not saying trials should feel good. I'm not saying we should go, yay, trials. I'm not saying we should do that either. But when trials come, we have to recognize that Jesus is the one who is trying us. 
And he says various trials. In Romans chapter 8, Paul talks about uh, the sufferings that we all go through as we live in this present evil age. In the original language, what it's talking about there are various trials that we're experiencing, various sufferings. Some people will tell you, some people who have a triumphalistic theology will say that believers don't have to go through trials. The only trials we have to endure are related to the persecution that comes when we're faithful in preaching the gospel. The scriptures do not, don't teach that. The scriptures teach that whether you are a believer or a non-believer, something bad is going to happen in your life because we live in a broken world. But for the believer, the scripture teaches that Jesus is the one who is trying us with our suffering. He is trying us. I anticipate that this is going to be a, a beloved sermon as I <laughs> go through this more. Um, so we've got to ask ourselves, why is Jesus trying us? Um, I know I used some C.S. Lewis last week, and I'll do it again without apology. Love that man. But there's something he said in his book, The Problem of Pain, that I really love, and it goes like this. Lewis says, To ask that God's love should be content with us as we are is to ask that God should cease to be God. Because he is what, because he is what he is, his love must, in the nature of things, be impeded, or repelled by certain stains in our present character. And because he already loves us, he must labor to make us lovable. God allows pain in our lives because he is laboring to make us lovable. He's not laboring to make us worthy of his love, Jesus made us worthy of his love. We are not worthy of his love. He loved us in our most repugnant form. He loved us. He set his sights on us and he said, you, I want you. And then when you finally came to your senses, you're like, really, you want me? Me? Do you know my story? He's like, yes, and I love you, and I, and I love your story. I don't like what your story's done to you and how you've interacted with your story, but I love you, and I love the way that I'm uniquely shaping you and making you and remaking you. I love you, not for anything that you bring to the table, not for any merit of your own, but because of Jesus, how much I love him, and he died for you to make you worthy of my love. That's good news. That's the gospel. That's the gospel. He's laboring to make us lovable. He's laboring to make us lovable. But here's another implication you can pull out of verse 1. To reach for joy implies that sadness and fear are the norm during trials. He wouldn't have to say, count it all joy, if during our trials we automatically felt joy. Right? What he's doing here is validating our sadness. He's validating our sadness. When you are going through a trial, you are feeling sad. You're feeling anger, maybe rage. You're feeling hurt. You're feeling an array of these emotions, these feelings that I would argue that are appropriate to feel when you're suffering. 
feelings that God gave you to help you navigate through this world, this very broken world. And so, because he's having to tell us to reach for joy, to consider it all joy, that means that whenever we're suffering, sadness and fear are normal. So there's nothing wrong with you when you're feeling sadness and fear when you're going through a trial. You're not an idiot. You're not stupid. This is normal. Our hearts will always drift to sadness and fear when we're going through trials. And James is validating us in that. I know that you're sad, but I want you to have joy. I want you to know joy. I want you to know it. And so this is normal. Sadness is near our suffering. It's always near our suffering. And this means that we need to know, if you want to experience joy in suffering, then we are all going to have to cultivate a new set of practices to be able to experience our sadness appropriately. To experience it appropriately. Experience it appropriately? This is is Dr. Phil or Jesus here. What's, What's going on? Stay with me. It may be a little of both. There's a guy named uh, Chip Dodd who wrote a book called The Voice of the Heart that for the last several years, I've been, it's just been like a feeding trough that I've been eating out of. And I'll be honest with you, several of you that I've told to read that book before, you've come back and said, man, I hate that book. It's terrible. And um, part of it is, is that he's just making us face things that we don't want to face. The other part is, is this just not written that well. And um, so... I had some guy tell me recently, he said it's like he was giving talks and somebody like transcribed what he was saying. And it's just, it's just not written that well. So it's not like one of those things you can curl up with in front of a fire, you know, in the fall. Um, and I would have thrown that book on the shelf and forgotten all about it once I suffered my way through it. Um, if I had not been, I think, by God's divine grace, been introduced to several other pastor friends who made that book... Uh, who used that book to become the language of how to navigate through their feelings and through their pain. Um, And man, in the back of my mind, I hear some of the objections, like really feelings? (laughs) Feelings? Uh, Yes, feelings. Because I am learning that the things about ourselves that we greatly dislike, we can't break free of those things because we've not ever dealt with the way that we feel. And because we don't like feelings, we don't like sadness and anger and fear and loneliness and hurt, what we do is we try to ignore those feelings. And when those feelings don't go away, that's when it makes us vulnerable to addiction. And we fall into addictive snares and tendencies and full-on addiction that crushes our life all because we're trying to suppress our feelings that we don't like to feel. And one of the things that Dodd says in his book over and over is feel your feelings. You've got to feel your feelings. You can't suppress them. You can't ignore them. You have to feel them. You've got to feel them. And I know for us that's totally counterintuitive, especially if you're a dude, especially if you're a man. Because for the first couple of years you lived... The love language that we interacted with with our parents and everybody else was love. It was love. 
My little Micah, there's nothing he can do wrong. He went to a birthday party yesterday, and he was given this gun that shoots rather uh, furious darts. Like, we all need to wear goggles in our house. These darts are really violent. And um, so he went around, and he's drawing, little, he's drawing little circles as best as he can that are supposed to be targets. They look like amoebas, but they're targets. And these amoebas, these targets, he has put them all over the walls of our house, and he's just walking around, just wearing out our walls, shooting this thing, and we're like, that, I, I think that's great. It might break a window. It might break a window, but I don't care. It's, it's Micah. He's our grandchild, our child. So um, there's nothing he can do wrong. He loves to snuggle with us. He loves to cuddle us. We have a rule. You can only sleep with us on Friday nights. And then he turned on the waterworks last night. And I was like, come on, get in bed. And so just crawl in bed with us. And then all night long, feet in my face, in my mouth. Um, But there's going to come to a point where he's going to recognize something. That he's not going to be loved because he's cute and sweet and precious. He's only going to be loved if he's respectable, if he's strong. Because that's what we tell our boys. Be strong. That, it's, it scares me. I feel fear when I think about that. But I know for a lot of us in here, the idea of feeling our feelings is really scary. And not just guys. The ladies too. We're afraid of what's going to happen if we go there. What will we find? What will come bursting out? The question isn't, though, whether it will come bursting out, but when. You can't suppress it your whole life. It will come bursting out, maybe in tears, when you're alone before the Lord. Or it may come bursting out with a therapist, which is not a bad thing. It may come bursting out um, when you're face down in addiction. It may come bursting out as you look back over your past and see every relationship that God has ever brought your way is in ruins. It's a smoldering. It's going to come out. It's not if. It's when. And so we have to face the sadness in our lives if we're really going to experience joy, real joy. You don't get joy at an altar call. You don't get joy by reading your Bible. You get joy by facing yourself. And here's the good thing. And this isn't a cliche. It's going to sound like a cliche. But here's the good news. Jesus is willing to face your past with you. He's willing to face your past with you. I know that sounds like a total cliche. It's like, what what do I do with that? It's sort of like what I said last week. I know. How do I I get Jesus to face my past with me? I know. (laughs) You just have to go to it. You've got to look at it. You've got to admit it. You've got to acknowledge that you were ravaged by someone that you trusted who terrorized your soul. You've got to face that. And if you don't face that, again, it's going to come tumbling out. I don't know when. I don't know how. I don't know where. It will come tumbling out. Um... Gosh, I feel so inadequate in saying these things because I know I sound like some expert therapist, but I am so not. I'm just telling you what I've read in a book and what I've looked at in my heart and what I've watched on YouTube. Um, (laughs) 
This is all counterintuitive. This is all counterintuitive for me too. So I want to ask the question, I want us to ask the question together, what is sadness? And Dodd says this about sadness. Sadness is the feeling that speaks to how much you value what is missed, what is gone, and what is lost. Sadness also speaks of how deeply you value what you love, what you have, and what you live. That's what sadness does. It reminds us of the precious things in our lives. Maybe a dream that was lost. Maybe a marriage that burnt down. Maybe a friendship in which you, were, in which you felt betrayed. It's something precious in your life that was lost. And sadness reminds you of that gift that was given to you. That you're grieving. And you are meant to grieve. You're meant to grieve. I know a lot of church people will say, don't cry, have faith, trust in Jesus. That is not what, that's not what it means not to grieve. Those are two different things. You can have unrelenting trust in Jesus and still grieve and still mourn greatly the things that are lost. You can even see this, how it's embedded in our culture. Um, I'm going I'm to make a, a point here, and in no way am I shaming anyone in this room. But today, you even see the language in the way that we mourn those we've lost. We don't use the word funeral anymore. We call it things like homegoings and a celebration of life. Again, that's fine. That's fine. I'm not picking on anybody. I'm really not. But we're afraid to interact with our sadness. We're afraid to feel sadness. And when pain hits our lives, we want to escape the clutches of pain so fast that we're not willing to really feel our grief. And so we come up with words like this. We only want happy things to be said. There's one of my favorite verses is in the book of Acts, in Acts chapter 8, verse 2. Stephen, who was a deacon in the early church, he was stoned and killed for the gospel. And here's what the Bible says about his funeral in Acts chapter 8, verse 2. It says, Devout men buried Stephen and made great lamentation over him. They wept bitterly over the death of Stephen. They knew he was in heaven. His future was secure, but they missed him because they loved him and he was taken from them, and they were going to miss him. And so it was appropriate to grieve that loss. It was appropriate to grieve that. Grieving is not bad. It reminds us of what we've lost. Sadness gives us the gift of honoring life and valuing life. Sadness speaks directly to our need to grieve the precious things that have been taken from us. And if we grieve genuinely and authentically, we eventually come to terms to accept life on its own terms. We accept life on its own terms. However, Dodd says... If we can't acknowledge how much we've lost means to us, then sadness will only deepen because we need 
to honor our losses with grief. We need to. And grief doesn't just vanish. It goes somewhere and it piles up. It doesn't just go away. It doesn't just go away. And so we must acknowledge our sadness. And by acknowledging our sadness, we acknowledge ourselves. And when we validate and acknowledge our sadness, we are putting ourselves on the path of healing. Now, I know James doesn't say all this. I know that. If you're looking for an expository message today, I have obliterated that text. I know that. I know that. But I can't imagine followers of Jesus, maybe I'm wrong, sitting here going, oh, that, that, no, you shouldn't have said that. Because I think the more you read Scripture, if you read it without that cold, calloused lens that it's just data written on a page by heartless, soulless missionaries then you can really feel the heart impulse behind words in Scripture. Cast your cares upon Christ because He cares for you. Let the peace of Christ reign in your hearts. These were men who weren't just fearless missionaries, but they were some of the most tender pastors. And they loved the people that they wrote to. And I know this, that for a long time, I couldn't obey verse 2 to count it all joy when bad things happened because anxiety exploded inside of me. Anxiety that I've dealt with since I was a little kid. And I've learned to acknowledge the fear and the turmoil and the anxiety that exists in my life that, that may be with me for the rest of my life. I've learned to honor that and acknowledge that. And what that's helped me to do is begin to walk the path of healing in my life. And it's been totally transformational. Totally transformational. But it's hard. Because when I'm sad, the temptation is to medicate. Because I taught myself from my junior high years on to medicate my sadness rather than facing it and feeling it. And I'm relearning as a 43-year-old adult. I'm relearning how to feel my feelings and experience the sadness that comes with this life, to feel the hurt that comes with this life, to feel the anger that comes with this life, anger for things that are wrong that I really desperately want, I want to be right. I'm learning to feel fear. I'm learning to feel guilt and shame appropriately. And here's what Dodd says, and I've really come to agree with him that there's no way you can really experience the feeling of gladness, deep gladness, unless you really know how to interact with and feel hurt, sadness, anger, fear, shame, guilt, all those things. You really can't experience joy unless you know how to feel your own feelings and face yourself. Somebody told me this morning when they saw the Facebook plug, we're talking about trials. She was like, man, I'm, I need this. I'm really going through stuff. And I'm like, man, I don't know if you really do need this because I feel like I'm probably going to be opening up at a can and just leaving it open and walking away for seven days. And I feel sort of irresponsible. I'll, I'll be honest with you. Um, but I would rather it be uncovered and seen and be out in the open and us having to feel with the raw ends of our nerve endings rather than it be suppressed by 
churchianity. I would really rather that happen. We need to feel our sadness. And this brings us to why I'm even addressing this today. Because we don't want to be a triumphalistic church. That's not what we're going for. We're not going for that. We don't want to be the church that when we roll out a new initiative, everybody like the Stepford Wives is like, Hallelujah! Praise God! Glory! Jesus! You know, we don't, we don't want that in our church. I don't want that. Now that's easier. It's easier when there's the feeling that everybody's on board. That's easier. It's harder when there are people who are experiencing sadness and maybe some fear that we're going to two services and there are people that I may not be seeing every week that I used to see. An easy way to fix that is to volunteer in the nursery, but um, then you'd be here for two services. Um, Sorry, uh, um, sarcasm is one of my uh, medicating uh, things in my life. Um, So... We don't desire to be a triumphalistic church. Now, that's a, that's a value that we're reaching for. That's not some, some place where we are. We don't want there to be a peer pressure in this room whenever we roll out a new initiative and everybody feels the pressure to like it and love it or leave. We don't want that. We want you to know that it's okay to feel sadness. I have to believe that in the early church, these feelings were present when they were persecuted and scattered and likely never saw one another again and had to scatter to the uttermost parts of the Roman Empire. I have to believe that sadness and maybe some anger and fear was there. I have to believe that. The truth is, is that we live in a world that, that theologians say is now and not yet. The kingdom has come, but not in its fullness. And so while we're experiencing in different degrees the redemptive power of Jesus in all of our lives, we can still look at our same lives with the Holy Spirit dwelling inside of us and see all the junk and the garbage that we despise about ourselves. We can look at society and see the redemptive power of Jesus at work in our midst. I really do believe that this isn't just a cliche, that Memphis is one of the is, is there's never been a better time to live in Memphis than right now. I love all of the energetic and positive, some of it's Jesus-centered, some of it's just, you know, people with good hearts who may not even know Jesus who want to see this city thrive. I love what's going on here right now, yet at the same time, turn on the news every night and look at who was murdered. It's hard. And so we either overcompensate by raging, I hate this city, I'm going to Nashville, which is way worse than Memphis. I just want to say very absolutely. C.S. Lewis said that. Um, Or we can withdraw. We can withdraw, immerse ourselves in Netflix, and never leave our houses. We're all medicating in some way. We're all medicating in some way. I want us to be able to experience the joy of Jesus. And that means we're going to have to get used to feeling our pain, feeling our feelings. And I'm going to ask you, as we more explicitly go down this path, our leadership team, in helping our church, in cultivating a ministry, a church where it's safe to feel what you're feeling. 
I'm going to ask you to walk that path with us. Walk it with us. We want a textured community at this church. A textured community. We want the now and not yet stories of life and glory and victory and stories of pain and defeat and chaos. And we want to interact with all of those stories. This is what Paul meant, I think, when he said to carry one another's burdens. For those of you that feel victory right now, go up beside someone who's being defeated. Carry their burden with them. Walk with them. This is what we're going for. This is what we're going for. I have never been as sure about the direction of this church in the 10 years that I've pastored than right now. And I'm thankful for that. I want to see our church experience real joy, but appropriate joy while living in this present evil age where we have no control. And as we interact with our sadness and our fear and our hurt, it brings us to a place where we singularly need, desperately need Jesus. The best place you can be is a desperate need of Jesus. This is the gift of trials. They bring us to a place of desperate need for Jesus. And my friends, the church over the last, man, gosh, since the dawn of our nation has been feeding on a triumphalism in which we've tried our very best to get away from pain and away from trial. And as a result, we've got churches full of people who don't need Jesus. We need Jesus. To be clear in closing, I do not wish pain in your life. I don't. I don't wish it in mine. Don't wish it in my life. But I do want us to look at it differently. When we go to two services... It's okay if some of you feel sad about that. I can hear church growth experts now say, No, don't say that. You're giving them an excuse to mutiny. And I'm like, I don't care. I don't care about that. The bigger, if, if we get bigger and lose our values, we've not won. I want us to hold on and get deep in some of these areas. I want us to have textured community. I want us to be emotionally present with one another. When somebody's hurting, I don't want to think, I don't want all of us to think, well, the deacons will handle that. I want there to be an emotional and spiritual maturity in our church that we run to one another's aid when we're hurting. And the only way we're going to be that kind of a church is if we feel our feelings. Because most of us, the reason why we don't have empathy is because we've lost the ability to feel what we're feeling. Our hearts are calloused. They're hard. And when we hear stories, it's just another story of disaster befalling someone else. But rather, I would like for us to be so sensitive and so vulnerable that when we hear a story of hurt, it's like it happened to us. That's hard. It's hard because when you're carrying somebody else's burden, it hurts. That means that I leave my position of victory and joy and I walk into somebody else's defeat and pain. That hurts. That's not fun. There's nothing fun about this. But it's what our world needs. 
And when I think about what the New Testament writers say about the church of Jesus Christ, I think that they envision a church that is emotionally and spiritually and relationally healthy. And if we don't do this stuff, then we can come in here and be a great teaching center, and that's it. That's not our vision for this church. We want to teach well, but we want to live the gospel with nuance, with tenderness, with love, and with full heart. Jesus, I thank you for today. I thank you for your people. I thank you that they are a beautiful and glorious people. And I pray in your name that every one of us would have the courage, the cultivated courage to live and reach and strive for joy, for joy. I want them to know joy. I want us all to feed on joy together. In Jesus' name.